Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the astronomical task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally astronomical three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There is also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page. Uh, which is at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book. You know why it's not a Target book. I don't have to tell you. (laughs) That's fine. And, of course, we are still doing the sweepstakes. If we reach our funding goal by April 6th of 2018, which is just next month, some lucky new Patreon will get that lovely copy of Doctor Who and the... I love that one. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it. Doctor Who (coughs) and an amazing adventure with the Daleks. There we go. And, of course, we'd like to thank Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf, as usual. Yes, thanks, guys. This time, we're discussing Jerry Davis's novelization of his own script for The Tenth Planet. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet, adapted by Jerry Davis from the script that aired from 10866 to 102966, published by Target Books in February 1976. As of this recording in March of 2018, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 141 pages. Alrighty. Apart from the Daleks, the Crusaders, and the Zarbi, this is officially the oldest book we have read in the Target range so far. And it isn't even the first Cyberman book. Hmm. In fact, I suspect the cover tells us that this is the first Cyberman adventure because the target range had the odd habit early on of changing the names of stories for published versions and since they didn't publish them in order either for some reason the moon base which is the second Cyberman story was actually the first one that was novelized Hmm. and so they called it Doctor Who and the Cybermen which is really confusing if you're 10 years old and you think you're reading the first Cyberman book and everybody in the book knows who the Cybermen are already. So you need this to tell you it's the first Cybermen adventure, and not until the end right do you find out it's also the last Hartnell adventure, mm-hmm. which is why in certain editions of the book, and I think Allison has a PDF of one of them, Hartnell is in an illustration on the back of the book. Yes, yes. And tiny little circle. Tiny little circle right. and looking kind of distraught. That he's going to be leaving. Kind of Simeon, yes. Kind of Simeon. (laughs) Yeah, strangely Simeon. Yeah, so The Tenth Planet is actually nine books later. 
but Jerry Davis has kind of worked out all the kinks, obviously. This is also the first official Hartnell story to be commissioned by Target as a new book. And at that point, the first Hartnell story published in 10 years. That may explain the preface about the Cybermen. For some reason, Jerry Davis got in, into his head that the Cybermen originated on Telos, not on Mondas. So we get this very strange statement to verify that, even though it's accepted lore, they came from mm -hmm. Mondas instead. For the non-expert, I was a little bewildered. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's just really strange, especially since the late the Christmas special that introduced uh, Jody Whitaker. They're from Mondas. It's a given. But we'll see this intro again at least twice more in these books. We're also finally getting to see Jerry Davis's unmediated prose. Uh, since this is his second book for the range, he's worked out a lot of things from the first one. We spoke of Jerry Davis before when we read The Celestial Toymaker. So interested listeners can find his full bio there in episode 23, even though we highly suspect it is not his book. No. It is instead Alison Bingham's. <clears throat> Who wrote the original uh, script for that one? That was Brian Hales. Okay. And in fact, we have read two Brian Hales stories so far, that one and The Smugglers, and we have yet to read an actual decent one. <laughs> so when we get to one of his, well, I'll let you know. I'll ding, ding, ding it. As far as the televised story goes, it was the first in the official production block for season four. And by the time we get here, the producers in Hartnell have already come to a mutual agreement that he should leave the show. He agreed to come back and be paid for this one story only. And the story itself was drafted in such a way to allow Hartnell more downtime. Every single episode has minimal doctor in it, just in case he fell ill yeah. or couldn't do it. Which is why the solution to the Cybermen invasion is essentially, wait for it. That's the solution to the problem. Wait mm. for it. You know, patience is a virtue. <laughs> yes. I was waiting for the full Leslie Odom Jr. solo, and I was very yes, excited. Yes, exactly. No. Mondas is going to blow up any moment, so wait for it. We don't have to do a damn thing. This turned out to be a good move on their part, as Hartnell indeed fell ill with the flu the week before filming episode three. So they did the same sort of writing him out that they had to do way back in Dalek Invasion of Earth when he hurt his back. They gave his lines and business to other characters. The novelization puts all of that back where it belongs, but as you can see, it still doesn't give the Doctor a lot to do. <laughs> it also ends up with one of the most <clears throat> ironic things. Hartnell's last appearance is not even his last story. It's not even his last episode, I should say. That episode four does not exist. It's been reanimated, as we'll watch later on, but Hartnell's last <laughs> appearance is in episode two. I love two. that. Not it's been... Produced as an animation, but it's been reanimated. It's, it's been, been reanimated back from the dead. As a zombie, much like Hartnell himself. Mm. Hartnell would later respond to a fan letter and claim that he left the show because the stories were getting too violent and dark for children. And we mm. could see that with the smugglers, I'm sure. It's hard to really give that interpretation much credit with other stories like Celestial Toymaker. In any case, he was replaced by Patrick Troughton, whom we'll talk about in some detail when we do Power of the Daleks. Suffice it to say, Troughton was such a well-known actor that Hartnell allegedly proclaimed him to be the only man in Britain who could replace him in the role. So he was happy with his replacement. Okay, that's good. Hartnell did have a few acting jobs after this, but his health soon deteriorated past the point where he could work. By the time he was invited back in 1973 to be part of the 10th anniversary story of The Three Doctors, he could no longer remember lines and had to be relegated to a little more than a cameo. He was reading them off cue cards, hugely written because, you know, he couldn't put his glasses on. 
He died in 1975 at the age of 67, just after the announcement of Tom Baker's hiring for the role. Which, hmm. you know, people don't live as hard as they used to in terms of air pollution and that sort of thing. Even leaving aside things like lifestyle, 67 is much younger than I would guess looking yeah. at him in this last episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Much less his last year of life. Oh yeah, I mean he always played the doctors older. Hmm. But Hartnell himself, and you saw him in that movie we saw from mm-hmm. the 1940s, he was a hale and hearty man, but he was also a heavy drinker, heavy smoker, heavy womanizer, which always surprises me. Uh, that surprises me about Troughton, too, because if ever you see a picture of Troughton, you're like, this guy was a chick magnet? Really? Yeah, the Brits have yeah. a weird... People have, can have a charisma in person. Yeah, actor, you know, I guess. actors. Maybe if that's enough that. people look at your face... Some of them will like it. Maybe. I, mean, I think any any screen actor, I think, I can become the obsession of someone. Well, thank uh, God we're doing a podcast now. Uh, okay. Sexy voices. <laughs> yes. It's such a big problem in our lives, becoming the obsession of millions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even the obsession of one. Speak for yourselves. Well, that's true. You're the obsession of many. <laughs> not to take away from the sadness of Hartnell's passing, even though I think we just did, but of all the actors who appeared in that original story, one notable one who has not passed away is the actor Earl Cameron, who played the Negro astronaut. There's that word again. There's that word again. And who, as of this recording, is still alive. He's 100 years old. Wow. Yeah, he turned 100 last August. Wow. And amazingly, he's now not only the oldest surviving Doctor Who cast member, he has not retired from acting. Nice. He's still acting. He's still acting at 100 years old. One of his most recent roles is in the movie Inception. Nice. He also appeared on the BBC DVD release of this story, and Doctor Who magazine this past month did a full feature story on him. He's absolutely fascinating. He's not the astronaut in Inception who ages so much while they're on. No. Okay. No, because that would be too. Yeah. That would be too. Well, if he was an astronaut again, that's what I was thinking of. No, I think he's one of the. uh, I can't remember what part he plays, but he's in one of the dreamscapes. Um, one other noteworthy thing about this story, which we already said, episode four is missing. Has been since the 70s. Nobody knows exactly where it went. Even though the children show Blue Peter, <laughs> yes, it is the, called this. Between the, the sofa cushions and the trunk of the car. Yes, exactly. We hope to find it soon. Even though the children show Blue Peter often gets blamed for its loss, they just happen to run a clip of the regeneration sequence at the end of an episode. Wait, who lost what where? I was just talking about this. The children's show Blue Peter, uh-huh. which I said twice because it has such a comedic sound yes. to American ears, yes. they ran a clip of it, The Regeneration, when Tom Baker was introduced. But how were they held responsible for losing it? Because it was thought that they had um, borrowed Ordered. the master tape Ooh. and had lost the master tape, but they gotcha. still had the clip of The Regeneration. As it turns out, that's not the case. It turns out that that was always a myth, and they were always given that clip. Um, even more fortuitously, however, because that means we have the regeneration. We also have an early fan with an 8mm camera who took footage again of various moments from the episode. And the animated reconstruction I'll show you later actually uses those as uh, templates. Nice. So those scenes are recreated in the animation, which they did in 2013. So this show has been released commercially on DVD. And finally, one last thing. It was while working on this show that Michael Craze, who plays Ben, had a production assistant 
throw some of the fake snow at him, and unfortunately it got up his nose, which was a big <laughs> problem because he had, had just had surgery to take a bone spur out, yeah. and it almost died because there was a you know burst blood vessel, and this irritated his nose. He ended up marrying said production assistant. There so it just know. goes to show, if you like a person, throw a snowball at them, <clears throat> even if they're, it's not made of real snow. If you like a person, try agitating their surgery wounds. <laughs> yes, exactly. makes them love you. It seems to work. So, we're on to talking about the story itself. First impressions. Allison? Well, I really liked that the blurb was just an uh, excerpt instead of a synopsis. I mm-hmm. thought it was a very nice mood setter. Right. The synopses really do it for me. However, I, I think I've said this maybe even in the last episode, it takes a lot to sell me on a story about a robot or a horse. Or for that matter... <laughs> a robotic horse? <laughs> robotic horse. Or for that matter, you know, uh, Simeon either, like apes, monkeys, gibbons. Like the doctor on the back of the book. Lemurs, baboons, no thank you. <laughs> so anyway, so I was not necessarily excited about, it, excited about it in the same way I wasn't especially interested in the pirate one because... You know, blah, blah, blah. They have no emotion or love. Mr. Data doesn't know how to name his cat properly. Oh. Learn the meaning of death, <laughs> etc. And that was mentioned a few times in this, but it was gone over lightly. We right. mostly focused on the human characters. I think they did with the Cybermen weren't very interesting. So fortunately, they were in it mostly as menace, which I thought they worked great at. Mm-hmm. They did not <clears throat> learn the meaning of love or anything of the sort True. there. So I actually enjoyed it significantly more than I expected to, okay. especially some of the... The mood setting in the initial blurb and the creation of the Cybermen and the forward, not forward, but... Um, preface. Preface. The first page set in italics. Yes. (laughs) And then some of the action sequences where they are small stakes in terms of sci-fi and Doctor Who stories. Yes. They did a very good job of explaining, or uh, the writer did a very good job of... Uh, very simply creating the personal physical peril mm-hmm. and discomfort and fear yes. in ways that I thought were great for a youth book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially the plight of the astronauts. It's yes. much more oh. affecting on, on yes. the page than it yes. is even on screen. Well, even at one point when Ben is crawling through a duck and talking oh, about the yeah. bolts are tearing at his clothes. Scraping him, and, and even though he'd been crawling right. for like two minutes, he already was tired. Yes, yeah. and yeah. then that his neck has to be held at a weird angle so someone doesn't see him. These yes. sort of small-scale adventures mm-hmm. worked really nicely. Polly is in the metal chair, and it's not that bad, but it reminds her of an electric chair, and she's mm-hmm. completely freaked out that they don't understand how temperature and then she remembers, you know, she's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to freeze in here. They right, don't yeah. right. <laughs> so I, I'm interested to know if on screen those moments played as well, because they did a really great job of showing the sort of vulnerability of bodies, yeah, human bodies in here. You don't get it. You don't get it on screen, strangely enough. You think you would in a story that's about, you know, how much better the Cybermen are because they can't feel emotions. But as far as physical feeling goes, no, there's not a lot in the story about that. But I thought it was a nice contrast. So oh, yeah. more emphasis than usual in what the humans felt in their yeah. small adventures. Okay. Um, Don, first uh, impression? I was, I was excited to read about the, the beginnings of the Cybermen. Uh, having, having seen a lot of the, the newer series and seen lots of adventures and stories with them, it was nice to go back and see where they came from, see how it started, um, and how it ended for the first Doctor, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, same same as Allison. Like 
a lot of the the feelings of dread mm-hmm. and just the menace uh, of the Cybermen I, I felt came across really well, um, and it really for me kind of shows why like the Daleks how they transferred yeah, to yeah. the newer series mm-hmm. and and how they they've had staying power. Yeah. In fact, before we go any further. I forgot this for the last two times, um, so let's actually have the little blurb on the back, because it's not a bad one. The sergeant blinked again. Three lights were moving towards him through the murk of the blizzard. Even as he looked, the lights changed into three tall, straight figures clad in silver-armored suits advancing across the ice with a slow, deliberate step. Horror struck, the sergeant reached for his gun, and a stream of bullets sprayed across the marching figures. But they continued marching. The Cybermen have arrived. The first invasion of Earth by this invincible, fearless race, and the last thrilling adventure of the first Doctor Who. Yeah, it's a really good blurb, and it tells you basically all you need to know about the plot. Yeah. The Cybermen, I thought, work best in this story when they are the unfeeling menace more than when they actually speak. Really? Okay. How, how is that portrayed, then? How, how do you get them as the unfeeling menace when they're not speaking? Well, here when they talk about you know, the lights approaching, uh, the oh, idea yeah. that if they don't have feelings and they don't have vulnerable bodies, hard to give them what they want. Yes. Hard to placate them, hard to manipulate them, because they don't have the same sort of appetites and vulnerabilities that might usually be used to misdirect an enemy. Right. I could see that. Well, and impervious to damage, you know, yeah. they're on a, they infiltrate a military base, and all we have is guns to shoot at them, and it doesn't do anything. Yeah, doesn't, exactly. Doesn't hurt them. Um, it's not, a, and it's not until later when Ben discovers, oh, radiation. Yes, let's yeah. let's do that. Mm-hmm. It does seem at first like they might be the first enemies that we've read about in the books that the Doctor can't sort of double talk into submission. Yeah. True. But then ultimately, he sort of can. He sort of can later, but here he's a little busy dying. But, <laughs> yeah. but we don't know that's coming. We don't so know at that's first, coming. they really are yeah. quite terrifying because they, yeah. they don't seem um, vulnerable to his particular brand of manipulation and talk therapy. Right, that's true. Yeah. And I think that's what impresses me most about this book, the fact that you do have that incredible feeling of foreshadowing that this is not going to end well for the Doctor. Mm. Except it ends up quite well for the Doctor, just not for the first Doctor. <laughs> but, I mean, that's only natural. Yeah. He was already on the downward slope, so... Yeah, precisely. No, nothing that the Cybermen did forced the transition, really. Well, here's the thing, though. It's kind of a fan theory, and I think it's kind of borne out a little bit in the story itself. The Mondas power transfer. Mm-hmm. It affects the astronauts when they're up in the, the yeah, capsule. when they're closer to the when planet. When they're closer to it. But the Doctor is a lot more susceptible to that sort yeah. of thing. Which, yeah. I, I was going to say, um, remember when we read The War Machines, I was yeah. like, this reminds me of Cybermen. Yes. How does this play into it? And you yeah. said, no, this is totally something separate. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, see, seeing how how this was written as opposed to that one, it's like, mm-hmm. all right, there are some ties. There are yeah. some thi- in- yeah. influences, you know. Yeah, I'm sure if the Doctor were feeling better, his hair would be standing up right. as it does around the Daleks or around Votan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if the astronauts having this relatively abrupt experience of feeling their physical strength drained away where we don't at first understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. They physically are having... Tr- 
we think the situation is so out of control that the controls of the capsule are not effective and we realize right. that they physically can't work them the way they ordinarily right. would and apparently there's no power steering in space <laughs> even in 2000 or, or on my car but, yeah initially yeah. took took it as like g-forces affecting them. right but then but. they realize it's them and not the, just yeah. the equipment and the situation i thought i wasn't sure if that was supposed to be sort of an illustration of his feelings of aging and deteriorating yeah or if he was supposed to be directly affected in the same way the astronauts mm-hmm. were because um, I, I made some notes here about the first way that different characters are described. There were some things I really liked and some things uh, not so much. But the doctors physically described after we're told that he's aging. So the mm-hmm. first page we have, throughout a couple of paragraphs, aging rapidly, uh, beginning to uh, stoop a little, absent-minded, long white hair, long fingers... But we get to the hair and the finger is last after we're told he's starting to slip. He's becoming yes. more cranky. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe the astronauts were supposed to illustrate his feeling of not really knowing what's happening at first. Maybe. Or maybe he's literally feeling the same thing from the planet draining him. I'm sure he is. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's like that dichotomy there. It's like, all right, yeah. here's here's this parallel. Yeah, the, the doctor is already getting ill, but Mondas is making it worse and somehow pushes it over the edge. Um, no, I thought maybe the entire book was supposed to be sort of a metaphor for aging. It could be. In fact, if you think about it, what is the... Yeah, that... Ooh, that's, ooh, that's terrifying, especially when I think about my um, own bouts of thanatophobia. What's the best way to combat death? Wait for it. What else can you do? Hmm. There's it's, no way to it's stop. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mondas is going to explode. The doctor is going to regenerate. Hmm. Yeah, it's not going to end well for either of those two, and yet there's still some hope there. In fact, Ben even has the line where there's life, there's hope, which is something yeah. the third doctor says a lot. Mm. So it's almost like a catchphrase, like uh, allons for the tenth <laughs> doctor. A little more profound. A little more profound. Yeah, a little more. True. Okay, so lots of stuff to talk about here, really. Especially since we are seeing Davis writing for the first time. And Dalton, you and I talked about this really briefly when we were waiting for Alice, and you said that it really read like a different author yeah, compared to Celestial Toymaker. Celestial Toymaker was... I don't know if it was so much the story or, or the writing or both, but yeah, this this book just came off... I got more feeling. I got more detail. I got just more... Of what I want out of out of a story like this, you know, there there was uh, there was tension mm-hmm. there that I didn't really feel with the Celestial Toymaker. No. It, it felt like oh they're in danger, but they'll get out of it. This one, and, and and you know, it might be because of the Doctor's deteriorating status, but it still felt like oh crap, like something could happen. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know how how long Ben and Polly are going to be here. Something yeah. could happen to either yeah. of them. They could get separated. There was even one point, even though I know we had talked about the regeneration happening, where I thought that this would lead into the next story. Oh yeah, in ways, <clears throat> you know, mm-hmm. um, which that that might be because it felt the ending felt a little rushed right in ways but uh but yeah i felt like okay this could lead into something more mm-hmm. um 
But yeah, the, the writing definitely feels much different than yeah. the Celestial Toymaker. Absolutely. Um, well, so how do you feel about it? It had a lot of the things that I liked about the first 30 or 50 pages of the Celestial Toymaker better rendered here. Mm-hmm. And then that book, I thought, completely fell off at the end. But I'm thinking it had been better than I expected at the beginning. Okay. Um, it, I thought it was it's a nice... Unex- <laughs> it, it was not fancy in ways that I appreciated for this style of story. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a nice, it has a nice unexpected twist about what the Cybermen were there for. Yes. Um, you know, they present themselves as both sort of looters and rescuers in a very matter-of-fact <laughs> yes. way. Yes. I did not expect them to say, well, you're going to come live on our planet now. Well, it would be foolish for you not to. And a sort of, I don't think it was supposed to be metaphor for an abusive relationship, but, <laughs> no, of course you should be dependent on me now because I've taken all your money, and so don't worry, I'll take good care of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in sort of a manipulative kind of way. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I did not see that coming, and it... I feel like uh, thrown off balance as the characters were right, by the right. Cybermen not knowing what they were going to do next because inexorable menace would have been scarier but more predictable. True, true. Yeah. And, you know, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, the the Cybermen I know are constantly coming to Earth to basically assimilate people, mm-hmm. to transform mm-hmm. humans into Cybermen. Right. This is a, it's a totally different... Well, that's still what they're going to do. Well, but they're at least presenting it as we're doing you a favor, folks. We don't have emotions. We don't have pain. We don't feel discomfort. This is better for you, and you should definitely come. It's almost like, you know, the religious figure that's drank the Kool Aid. Yeah, it's like, of course, our way of life is better. Why yes. wouldn't you want this? And if yeah. if you don't want it, we'll kill you. And even though there are some of the usual tropes in there of oh, they just don't understand love, I thought it was interesting that. Cutler illustrates in so many different ways that they might be right because he manifests so many different (laughs) human weaknesses via emotion. Uh, I thought it was interesting that not only does he manifest weaknesses through pettiness, although I think our new slogan should be uh, drawn, some adaptation of the phrase, the general liked his little jokes to be appreciated. For we too (laughs) like our little jokes to be appreciated. Mm -hmm. But not only is he petty and vindictive, but he has, you know, this more powerful emotion of wanting to save his son, but it's all shown as weakness. Mm -hmm. So that was a little different turn than I expected. No one was saved by love no. in this story the way you might expect no not at all cutler is a fascinating character though isn't he because <clears throat> on screen <clears throat> he's played by a canadian actor who went on to play many roles and after this who also knew william hartnell personally and there's a lovely line where the um the doctor says, I don't like your tone, sir. And the general says, and I don't like your face. I don't <laughs> like your face. That was good. Yes. And that's like a bit of foreshadowing. I totally so, missed that. I don't yes, like your face. I'm, Stick around. I thought about that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Just, yeah, wait for don't it. Win. Wait for it. <laughs> yeah. But on screen, he says, and I don't like your face, nor your hair. <laughs> because Cardinal had a hairpiece <laughs> that he wore as the doctor. <laughs> so it was a nice little bit of uh, <laughs> meta. <laughs> But his depiction of Cutler is just vicious, and you can feel for the character at the same time as you realize this guy is going to get us all killed. Yeah. The Cybermen yeah. are going to kill us anyway, yeah. but this guy's going to do it even faster. And then maybe they do have some <clears throat> points after all, because yeah. everything he does is out of emotion. He doesn't 
feel that any of it's out of emotion. He finds himself yes. very objective, and it's like every bad boss everyone's ever had. Oh, God. The person who mm-hmm. thinks of themselves as very logical and objective as you watch them govern. This is not my current boss, Scott, you're wonderful. Um, <laughs> but as you watch them administrate based on their fears and insecurities yes. and projecting that onto everyone else. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Oh, and he yeah. never really, Politics much? He never, but he never really <laughs> redeems himself from it in the story. Yeah, it's that's not like true. Cutler turns around and out of emotion, you know, acts in self-sacrifice or anything no. like that. He never really. No, uh, he never has that he's turn. Wrong. Never has that turn. Let's talk about. Yeah, we've got him, and we've got this weird trope of, you know, the sun being sent up as a sacrificial lamb, and it turns out the sun is okay, which is great and all all well and good. But here's the big question. Why are the Doctor and Polly and Ben there? If they were not there, what would be different? Then Cutler would have detonated the... Z bomb. So we know for sure that that's the case. Because Polly wouldn't have been there to talk the scientist out of it. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's. And it. convince him to show Ben how to sabotage the launch. Which I, how I took it. Yeah, I, I think that might be it. Because this is one of the few times where it's not the doctor who's the prime mover of the plot, it's the companions. And this time it kind of has to be the companions, which is why. It's an incredibly strong Ben and Polly story. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I love those two in this story. They're just amazing. I think that writer's done something here that's really challenging to do, which is show people who get along and are close and work together well without bickering and sniping at one another, which is actually, I think, quite challenging to write, or maybe people would write it more, but what's the Tolstoy quote was it from Anna Karenina about all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Yes, exactly. So we're used to the friend the sort of pop fiction, the friendship dynamics of Kirk and Spock and Bones, mm-hmm. where they snip and snipe and spar, but they're all very close. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, or the romantic dynamic of Benedict and, and Beatrice, mm-hmm. where yes, they're in love, but they won't admit it. Mm-hmm. And all of the companions have arguably had a lot of that dynamic with each other in different combinations and with the doctor yes. up until now because it's a lot more fun to write. Yeah. But the last two books have managed to write Ben and Polly in a way where they don't snip and snipe and they're actually really fun. And that's yeah. really challenging to do. It is. Yeah. And it I is. haven't seen those actors, but obviously they are inspiring and different authors mm-hmm. uh, a, a way to write this that... that can be really tough. Now, admittedly, Ben does tease her a lot and calls her Duchess, but she seems yes. to like but that. But it doesn't seem to be the excuse me, princess, sort yes. of mocking, ooh, aren't you a snob mm. sort of way. It really does seem affectionate. Yeah. It seems and, like Gambit and Rogue. Like, Mosheri, yes. like, very, yeah. very playful, yeah. right. but not... But not bitchy. But not In the way bitchy, that can be. Not necessarily misogynist or anything yeah. like that. A lot of them can be, ooh, you you must think you're special compared to me. And right. It yeah, that, it's that not that. Right. He, all, I, think, I think Ben looks at her. I mean, he has some interest in her, so mm-hmm. he feels like a protection. Yeah. And he wants her to be safe. But so. he's not condescending. No. Was no, he's not. Which is amazing. So in the previous <clears throat> book, or the, the, I'm sorry, in The Smugglers... We have a couple of situations where Polly comes up with a plan on the spot. 
tips him off ever so slightly, he immediately picks up on it and yes. participates. And then in this book, they switch places. Yeah. And so at one point, Ben and the Doctor are being led away. And uh, Cutler says, oh, a girl can stay. She's harmless. And, she, and Polly says, no, I'm going with them. And Ben pretends that he's fussing at her. No, you stay here. But he's actually saying, no, you stay here and work on the scientists. So yeah, he loudly right. is condescending, but his plan yes. is actually not condescending. It's, no. I'm going to take care of the doctor. He's the one who's vulnerable. You go work on the scientist, and she picks up on it instantly. Yes, and they actually have this very nice dynamic of one of them comes up with the plan, mm -hmm. the other one is really good at picking up at it on exactly. it. Exactly. It can be hard to communicate without body language. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Well, and they even say that, that Ben is cockney, right? Yeah. So that's kind of that attitude. It's a little playful. Yeah. It's it a, it's it's not so serious. It's it's, it's more kind of the artful dodger, like a little yeah. a little more like his loose. crack about Father Christmas on the side. Right, who's, right. Who's coming so to visit us, Doctor? It's <laughs> it's endearing. Yeah, it is. Part of the plan is that everyone else is going to assume that Polly is kind of harmless and stupid, and Ben's one who knows she's not. Yeah, and yeah, they're both in on that, if you yeah, will. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they're going to use that to their advantage. Yeah, um, and oh, but she doesn't my. have to prove it to him over and over again. No. He already sees this. Even she does not. So. She does not. And you'll see a lot of that in Power of the Daleks when we get there. Nor does he have to prove that because he is perhaps from a lower social class that he is not stupid, exactly, or crass. They, right. It can be hard to write an engaging way of people effortlessly seeing the positive. In one another. Yeah. yeah without it yeah. Seeming, seeming dull. It is. This has a nice effervescence to it, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not quite Tommy and Tuppence, but <laughs> it's no, got that sort of byplay. Kind of, yeah, so that has a little more snipping and sniping, but in a fun yeah. way as opposed to a darker well, way. Well, just wait until we get a fun doctor yeah. thrown into the mix because right. that really electrifies mm -hmm. things. I mean, Hartnell. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell Hartnell didn't really care much for these two young whippersnappers, and it's like, he's going to be going anyway, and they were like, oh, well, we respect him, he'll be gone soon, so... Yeah. Let's put up with him for now. But yeah. that was written in an effective way, where it says, you know, he actually calls them Barbara and Ian, yes. that it's, I thought the author did a nice job explaining it, it's not that he dislikes them, he just doesn't really process that they're yeah. there, and it's kind of this sad thing of, you know great-grandparents have a lot of great-grandchildren and a new baby may or may not register for them mentally yes. and like oh that's great it's a baby which one is that one right mm -hmm. so. it's it's almost like the senility kicked in yeah really oh, fast i'm like that with my nieces and nephews children because well. they keep popping them out <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's a good point especially since that's all davis that's all new that's not yeah. on screen but it's a good way of dealing with the problem because oh, yeah Doctor so not just weakened, but is frustrated, but not wanting to show that he's frustrated. Yes. And so he plays it off as agitation. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. Because as we know from the very beginning, this is the one doctor who does not like to show his vulnerabilities at all. Nope. And here he is at his most heartbreakingly vulnerable. Yeah. So it's actually kind of nice to have Jerry Davis giving the Doctor back his lines in episode three when Hartnell's not there. He's, his body double is passed out on a bunk, on a bunk bed mm. the whole time for the mm. whole episode. So that when he comes up at the beginning of episode four, it's, I'm back, I'm here. And you're like, oh, thank God. But you don't have that sense of that happening in this book. It's more this slow deterioration mm. that's 
sped up as time goes on. Yeah. What else? There were lots of names in this one. There lots were. and lots of. I was. I it it took me a little bit to uh, to weed through some of them. Yeah, it upsets me a little bit that I couldn't tell the difference between Barkley and Dyson. Yeah. And those are the two you kind of have to tell apart, but they end up being kind of flip-flopping a lot. I could tell the two astronauts from each other because Williams was the Negro astronaut, which is unfortunate, but... So about that. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about that. So 76 seems like an eternity before 1988, in a way that 2007 doesn't seem like an eternity before 2018. Agreed. Sort of the opposite of what expect. Um, but this writer does a much better job with it because what were our two monikers in the previous book? Was it huge Negro, huge Negro and enormous Negro? Negro. Mm-hmm. Or is there like a stipulation that if you have a black character, it has to be size adjective? <laughs> and so yeah. at first he avoided that because the first description's not bad for yeah. seventy six. So we've got this is the reason I was writing down descriptions of characters. Mm-hmm. So we've got Cutler. American in charge, I mean, of the facility. Dr. Barclay is the Australian physicist. Dyson is the English senior engineer. But yeah, as a physicist and engineer, you think what they would do is more distinct, but it kind of, it kind of alternate throughout mm-hmm. the story. But every, they're established by nationality that allows you to easily imagine different accents, which I thought right. was kind of a neat trick. Mm-hmm. Um, but not very physically described, but there's an equal amount of physical description for Williams and Schultz. Oh, yeah. So Williams <clears throat> is tall, handsome, American Negro of about 30. Schultz is uh, round-faced, cheerful-looking, German of American about 40. And I'm like, hot damn, they give an ethnicity to the American white guy. They that do. actually totally yes. works here. And later on, there's a guy... Italian-American. A couple of Who, times. Thank God they made him an Italian-American because in the televised version, he's Italian. And he is stereotypical mm. Italian, and it's mm. just awful. So that's one yeah. of the things that Davis smooths <laughs> out. So instead of it being <clears throat> like the usual kind of snide attitude of regular American and then the Negro-American, mm-hmm. it's, oh, these are the different Americans you have yes. here. Same amount of description, not more or less. Exactly. I'm like, okay, this actually is much better in 1976 and 1978. And then he just goes on to behave and speak as an astronaut. Yeah. They don't try to do 1970s Luke Cage dialogue no, or something no. that an astronaut would yeah. not be using. And on, on screen, he's not doing that either. And I believe the original... He doesn't sit around and think about what a black astronaut he is. (laughs) He thinks like an astronaut, acts like one. Like, there's nothing that's weird. And they made him American. The American accents in this one, even colors, are really quite well done. And then at the end of chapter three, big Negro astronaut. You were so close. You were so close. I even had that in my notes. Is it in the contract that you have to have an adjective? (laughs) Big, huge, enormous, like, is it really the only thing you've got there? You were doing so well. (laughs) It really is sad, isn't it? (laughs) But in uh, in ways, I feel like it's, it's, uh, since the story is from the 60s and the book is from the 70s, it feels like since it takes place in 2000, mm-hmm. the future is multicultural. Yes. Yeah. And so I yeah. like I like the fact that they brought that in. Yeah. You know, yeah. even even with them speaking to uh, the international 
whatever in uh, Geneva. In Geneva. It, it feels more like it, yeah. it's more globalized. It's right. not so much we're American, we're British, we're yeah. French, we're German. Yeah. It's everyone is working together <clears throat> to solve the problem. And you could actually imagine like a CNN commentator saying, well, we've gotten this report that there's a new planet in the uh, yeah. solar system and we're keeping our eye on it. The problem is the original story is not set in 2000. No. The original story is set in 1986. Ten years after the writing of this book, which is, I think, why Jerry Davis sets it further. So he didn't yeah. think we were moving along quickly enough? Yeah, I think mm. that's it. Wow. Um, which Wouldn't he like to see us today? I know. Well, but he did if manage to predict a date after the Cold War. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty good. That's nice. There was that. Yeah. Um, you notice that they don't say anything about the Soviets. They talk about other power blocks. Yes. So only they... once in a way I couldn't figure out if it was supposed to be an allusion to the Soviets. It was. Or... And luckily, he does it in such vague language that now, if it were, were set in 2000, we could say, oh yeah, the Russians. Um, but no, the original is set in 1986. Probably But for because, 25 years ahead of time, it's not a bad go in no, 2000. Not at all. Not at all. It's, it's kind of terrible for 86, but this is also when the show itself doesn't know that it's going to make it not only to 1986, but beyond. Mm. Uh, there will be a story in 1985 called Attack of the Cybermen, which is uh, kind of a prequel to this, but also a sequel to another story. It's just a mess overall, essentially. And it's trying to say, yeah, we know this doesn't actually happen in 1986 next year, but if it did happen, then this is how we get around it. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> weird. I actually prefer it being set in 2000 myself because it gives us that nice uh, cameo by James Bond, which doesn't happen in the original. Yes, yes. I was going to yes. ask about that. Yeah. Yes. Roger, Roger Moore. Moore. Roger yeah. Moore is James Bond. And other movies they didn't recognize. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know. He recognizes the movie that he, um, in the televised version, but I can't remember for the life of me what the movie was. Someone else has actually listed that because, of course, everything about every bit of minutiae in Doctor Who is listed. Of course. Someone knows what that movie was. What kind of losers sit around writing and chatting about Doctor Who for hours on I end? I know, Don't right? Have life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people that don't appreciate fine no wine and orphanages. the sort of things that we're chowing down on right now. Are there no orphanages? Are there no workhouses? Apparently <laughs> <laughs> not. Yes. It does make you wonder, because he also sets Ben and Polly being from the 70s. There are a couple references to that. Yeah. So that makes sense of them saying, oh, it looks like Houston Space Control. For 1966, they wouldn't know that. No. But having watched the moon landing in 69, they would. Except they're not from the 70s. Yeah. They're from the swinging 60s, and it's kind of... But that's fine. That's it's inconsistency, but it's <laughs> yeah. okay. Holly's exactly. supposed to be very fashion forward. So fashion forward. Yes. <laughs> She's five and ten years ahead of her time. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Ben is written as we wished Stephen to have been in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. He actually gets to behave like a sailor in a way 
that Stephen rarely was able to behave like an astronaut. Now, yeah. you draw parallels here of the astronauts being ready for shore leave, and Ben also is ready for shore leave, and saying he doesn't care what's outside the door. Next time it opens up, he's leaving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's used to doing repairs with hand tools. Yeah. He understands generally how to sabotage a launch when told. He's like, oh, right. oh, that will work in this and way. And Carlos saying, why aren't you with your ship? Yes. Yeah. And ways that, and even Polly is used to being able to, you know, talk people up while serving drinks and mm-hmm. people are able to use the strengths of their own experiences yes. more than previous companions have been yeah. able to, you know, so elated when Barbara or Ian got to use some of their yes. background. Right. Precisely. I think we didn't see a lot of it in Stephen's case because it was constantly being written as we were watching it. Mm-hmm. And Dodo, we could watch it being written and rewritten on the page as well as knowing that it was happening. <laughs> oh, pretty ridiculous. I will say, however, Polly in this story and the next is probably one of my favorite companions ever because she really leads the story here. Uh, in fact, even on the page, a big deal is made of the fact that she screams initially, but she gets over that fear really quickly. She's more fascinated by them and actually stands up to them, despite the fact that they have killed right in front of her and she knows that she could be killed any second. So, and that line about, but they'll die, don't you care? And the cyber leader says, why should I care? There are people dying all over your world, yes. but you don't care for them. Mm-hmm. That was actually the one time that I thought the emotionless machine plot device yes. worked really well. Yeah, that's a beautiful line. Yeah. It is unfortunate that it is delivered on screen the way it is. <laughs> hey, no, why should I care? I do not understand you. There are people dying all over your world, yet you do not care about them. You're, you're going to see what the Cybermen sound like soon enough. Their first appearance. I read it is quite profound and almost heart-stopping. Yes, except that's not the way the cyber voices sound at that point. <laughs> um, to their credit, uh, Big Finish Audio has used the Mondaskian Cybermen. In fact, we get a prequel to the story in which... The Fifth Doctor and Nyssa visit Mondas before the full cyber conversion. And you see that they're human beings just like us, but they're just about ready to die. And they have to do this in order to survive. And it's heartbreaking. So I didn't think the pseudoscience was any good in this one at all. The pseudoscience of? Well, one of the previous ones, there was a concept of a planet that circled two different stars and sort of a figure eight. Oh, yeah. And they had this cycle of, you know, decades or centuries long winters of summers. And it isn't actually how anything works, but it actually was pseudoscience that worked within the plot device here. But apparently, if I understand most recent discoveries correctly, uh, wandering planets are actually a lot more common than planets that are in an orbit. True. But they don't have anything alive on them because they don't have any kind of pattern that would allow any kind of life to develop or yes. survive. Mm-hmm. But how would they be able to... Uh, uh, I, I, I'm actually like uh, just staggered here by yes. the inanity of it all. How are they <laughs> able to not only develop and survive on this planet, but pull it up and parallel park it at the Earth <laughs> when they need to? That's... That, 
Yeah. It is. It wasn't incredibly... a bad explanation so much as there wasn't one proffered. There isn't one. That and kind of annoyed You me. don't get it until 1985, as a matter of fact. But Mondas has a Because they're here to siphon system. the gas. Yeah, it has its own <laughs> propulsion system. Okay. Which okay. begs the question of why they need one in the first place. And mm-hmm. the Big Finish audio spare parts kind of talks about that and the fact that they all had to go underground and have a subterranean existence because something happened and they were in Earth's orbit and it may have been actually the um, meteor that um, hit Earth and caused the dinosaurs extinction. Yeah, take a the, stab at it. It doesn't yeah, have to be good. But yeah. The Mondasians were... you know you have were, a well, duty to try. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to try here. The Mond- <laughs> not, not you, the writer. Well, yeah, but this is the way I always thought it was the case. The Mondasians are ahead of us technologically to the point that they evolved as humans before we did. And so that problem hits them and they realize, oh my God, this is coming. We need to get our planet out of this orbit or else it's going to be a problem we need to get underground and find you know something more suitable it's not as stupid as the concept of space 1999 another british show in which the moon is rocketed out of orbit and literally travels all over the universe encountering different life forms because the moon just kind of goes through their solar system slow just slow enough so that they can go back and forth and meet each other, but not quite slow enough that they're not out of the system and to the next one by the next episode. It is the stupidest concept. This isn't. Not quite as stupid. But yeah, it, if you think about it too long, it, it, it just makes your brain hurt. Yeah, I had to, I had to suspend my belief. You it, really uh, do. Uh, yeah, gravity. Just... <laughs> yeah. uh yeah, it's a it's a bit sillier on screen when they show Mondas <laughs> in space, and of course it's it's a globe spinning upside down. <laughs> it's Earth upside down, yeah. and it's like oh god. That's how they described it. Like they're, it takes yeah. them a moment to recognize the, the shapes because they're inverted. Right? Yeah, Polly gets fixated on Malaysia for some reason and says that must be Malaysia, and you wonder if that's because Annika Wells, the actress who played her, was born in Malaysia, so mm. she just wanted to get a shout it's a out. It's a really to complicated peeps. one to fixate on. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's hard to see it. Well, I again, like not thinking about it too much. It's like well. Would would a planet that's this similar to Earth have the exact same landforms? No. Over millions of years, it shouldn't. Well, they do say it's similar, but not quite the same. But like they, they say that they can the point out South America. Yeah. <laughs> so it's but, like mm, I know how plate tectonics work. It shouldn't uh, work on that. Really large. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And come to think of it, would that mean that their landmass is formed before ours, and when they left orbit, that's when the the, the oceans froze over and everything, and right. they had to go underground? I mean, yeah. that's why I say I had to just completely ignore you really do. all of that. Which is insane. Because it ruins it if I think about it too Yes, much. which is insane, because this is the story that was co-plotted with the series' new scientific advisor, Kit Pedler, and this is what they came up with, though and that's the thing. The science... Dead drunk the whole time? I guess so. I, the is real... he the guy who's the body double for the doctor who's asleep in the bunk no, the whole time? No, no, no. <laughs> not this time. But Kip Hedler, um, I mean, it was he was the one that came up with the idea for the War Machines, too. Okay. And the, his major concern is technology taking over human life to the point that human life no longer exists in the same way. And he has something there. I mean, you could see it in that... 
we do interact with our phones and our computers much more than we do with other human beings quite often. Unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. But they have not made us objective and emotion-free. Right, right. In spare parts, and I love the fact that the Big Finish audio is called that, because there's a line in this book about spare parts. The author, Mark Platt, took that and used it as the title of this Mm. Mondasian story. Mm. They have to replace things cybernetically because their own human systems are failing. When they brought it back for the new series, originally in that alternate universe, the Cybermen came about because humans were replacing body parts as fashion accessories. As a matter of fact, they had even secured the rights to the name The Body Shop. Hmm. So that those could be the places that people went to to get new arms and new mm. legs, cybernetic. And they eventually just go whole hog. And someone, someone said, well, no, that's never going to happen. Let's just make it the typical mm. bad scientist is trying to make us all that way. It's like, no, I, I think you're giving humanity too much credit. I mean, plastic surgery is booming. Yes. And the new series even goes back to that. But it's not the default i don't think any of us have it i could everyone looks really great i could be wrong (laughs) (laughs) no but it's it's one of those things that the new series is going to revisit with uh, capaldi's last story in which he says wherever there are humanoids there is the possibility of cybermen Mm -hmm. and he names mondas and telos and another planet which you wouldn't have known um earth and he says, yeah, wherever humanity is settled, wherever there's that push between technology and cybernetics, there's the possibility of this happening. What do you think? Exciting, isn't it? Watching the Cybermen getting started. They always get started. They happen everywhere there's people. Mondas, Telos, Earth, Planet 14, Marinus. Like sewage, and smartphones, and Donald Trump, some things are just inevitable. In the one of the very first stories of the new series, the last human who's just face on a skin, yes, on a Cassandra, frame. Cassandra, yeah. yeah, the classic Cassandra toxic. O'Brien, that Delta Seventeen, yeah, kind of worrisome because there is something to some of these things. What else? In the mm-hmm. last book, I said that Ben and Polly were awfully, you know, cavalier and a bit calloused about having found the body of this person they'd been talking to the day before. Like, ah, I guess he's bitten the big one or whatever they say or something like that. Right, exactly. We are nonchalant about it. But uh, the writer does something much more sort of lovely and subtle with Ben in a couple of different places here. First time when he really doesn't want to kill the Cyberman in the projection room. He wants to subdue him. He wants to escape him. But he really doesn't want to kill him. Yeah. And there's no other way to stop him. But after he's killed him, he feels the need to say something like, well, you didn't really give me a choice, did you? Like, he feels a need to perform to himself yeah. Yeah. more coldness and hardness than he actually feels. Which is played very differently on screen. Craze plays that moment as, you didn't give me any choice. He's yeah. really hurt. Whereas here, that. you definitely get that same concept yeah. that he he didn't want to do it, he really didn't have any choice, but that he immediately feels he has to sort of front. Yeah. That it hasn't affected him much. And then later, yeah. um, 
read part of this, you know, doctor, doctor, Ben was worried sick. The doctor seemed to have aged even in the few minutes they had been locked in the cabin and goes into a paragraph about how he's observing how his hair seems to have gone wider, mm -hmm. he's weaker, and then Ben shook his head dejectedly. Um, he began to speak to himself as usual, eh, better let the poor old geezer sleep. He seems to slap himself into performing what he feels like he should be a more detached person. He shouldn't... Yeah. He shouldn't be averse to killing. He should have no problem with it. He shouldn't be concerned about this old man who's rapidly aging and deteriorating. He should just be exasperated that he's an old geezer. And I thought that was interesting that he... Yeah. He is a better person than he, the person he thinks he ought to present yes. even to himself as. Yeah. And that's pretty subtle. And I think Polly sees that. <clears throat> I think that's what she's drawn to. That she... Whereas he would think the opposite that right. he needs to perform. Because these are scenes where he's talking to himself. Mm -hmm. That he needs to perform the person he feels he should be who is in some ways more like the Cybermen. Yes. And and more in fact, indifferent or even a little bit mocking. The first time we see him in the War Machines, he's hanging out in a bar and he's just glum and gloomy and he thinks that's supposed to be what you know a soldier alone in a bar right. should look like. <laughs> I thought it was actually quite lifelike depression. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then she comes up to him and mocks him and there's, you know, that's the beginning of it. Which I thought was going to be horrible because um, I thought it was going to be all manic pixie dream girl no. Um, Thank God. Motif where I, the funniest review I read of the movie Elizabeth Town is <clears throat> it looks like a smiley face trying to cheer up a frowny face. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not what it turned into, but I thought no. it was going to be that to begin with. But. Doctor Who will eventually have a few manic pixie girls, yes. I think we can say Clara quite comfortably fits that, at least when we first meet her. In ways, yeah. God, yeah, for sure. But not at this point. Luckily, not luckily not. I do find it interesting that the Z-bomb, the Z-bomb, is described slightly differently here than on screen. It sounds like they've got this massive atomic weapon at strategic points around the planet, just in case they have to blow up the planet in case of... Yes, that's what I thought. Yes, and that's going to be revisited later in The Stolen Earth with the uh, Osterhagen device mm -hmm. that Martha's trying yes. to use. <laughs> Who invented that? Oh, oh my God, Osterhagen. Yes. Osterhagen, apparently. <laughs> yes, it's one of the Tenth Doctor's best lines. Yes. But yeah, it's one of those moments that not only does Davis leave that open, but also, and you were talking about uh, Ben looking at the Doctor and noticing that he looked older. The Christmas special reintroduces us to the first Doctor just before his regeneration is played by David Bradley. David Bradley is a good 20 years older than Hartnell was when he played the role. He mm. is older than mm. Hartnell, so it's like, oh, good God. It actually works mm. on that level, too. <laughs> you, This could indeed be, in fact, I'm wondering if that's what's going to happen, because they are novelizing that Christmas special. And I'm wondering if they're going to go back to this book and they're going to go back to that one and try to seamlessly dovetail them together in some way. It's going to be hard to because John Peel does a very different intro than um, we get there. But that's fine. I don't mind that at all, in fact. So, what else? Color in the freaking cigars. Boop. Mm -hmm. What about the cigars? Just, what's the cigar, like every scene he's in, it's like, him pulling out a cigar, putting out a cigar, the scene with his son. But he, then Polly notices he puts it away. Yes. Because, you know. This is 
like a mid-century trope that we've almost lost of the general mm-hmm. or the colonel with the cigar that I assume is based on some actual World War II figure, and oh, I sure. just don't it's know which Arthur. one. But is MacArthur with the cigar? Yeah. Well, it's guys going to the smoking, you know, the smoking room after yeah. dinner to. Well, think and but they do indicate that he's not actually smoking it. It's just some kind of security. It's more performative. Yeah, mm-hmm. or I mean, even like a nervous habit. Yeah, yeah, something to do with your teeth. And in fact, she also notices him unbuttoning his um, buttons at one point, and notices something about that too. Polly ends up yeah. being really cagey about human nature in this. She's an observer. She she really, she really is like. Um, even I feel like she does a lot in this book, but she also, in some ways, is like taking a step back and just watching, mm-hmm. and that allows her to really uh, act at the right moment. Yeah, right. which also works once again for someone who worked in a bar, yeah. is used to yes. observing, figuring out the right moment to step in. Well, she's she was more of a secretary, but you're right. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm mixing up with the girl who ran the club. Yeah, the 18-year-old who somehow yeah. had a liquor license and was yeah. Yeah, <laughs> running her own club. I'm sorry, I am switching them up. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, in fact, I even said that, that simply her, um, we've already seen that uh, her training as a secretary actually shows that she's much more capable and intelligent than that, but she does have that training. She's used to managing up without people understanding what, what she's doing. I yes. Think. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. So you have to wonder exactly what she ended up doing when she went back to Earth and uh, ended up marrying him. Um, the black-helmeted cyber leader does not appear on screen. As a matter of fact, the way the Cybermen are described here is slightly different because they're not described as having these huge panels that are their guns. They're described as having weapons that come from their pads, which is what the Cybermen later do. Mm-hmm. In fact, the way, they, the way they make Cutler unconscious is by giving him a scalp massage. It's the most bizarre thing. That, <laughs> and he's so relaxed, he just falls asleep he for falls a while. He falls asleep for a while, yeah, that's exactly it. I did find it hilarious, though, when Polly is taken to the cybership... She actually says something along the lines of, um, she actually says something along the lines of, well, I've always, I've never have seen the inside of a cyber ship, so sure. And it's like, wow, what a brave girl. She's just incredibly brave. Then when she gets out there, she's like, hey, oi, can you turn up the heat? It's cold. She she gets knocked out, but then the Cyberman thinks, God, how, how, how much temperature does it need to be in here to keep a human alive? been so long she has a point there's a nice uncertainty in the story you don't know how things are going to hit people what seems like a very dramatic terrifying situation someone takes it in stride Mm -hmm. so it seems like a minor setback or minor development is terrifying Mm -hmm. a lot of things in life you don't know how they're going to hit you until they do yeah Mm -hmm. precisely yeah it's also so weird to have cybermen with names that's, That's why I couldn't remember them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, finally, Davis and the others give up on that because this is the only story to have them. Yeah. Because they are not, as you know from later stories, they're not that individualistic. No. The cyber leader is basically just a set of files that gets transferred into whoever's ranking at the time, and then he remembers the doctor and all of that. It's kind of weird in that way and very uh, Borgish, in fact. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. a nice detail in here of, I mean, there's always a question in the background of, what is it, which book was the 
doctor is sort of careening through the universe like a demented flea. Uh, <laughs> why does he keep doing this? He keeps nearly destroying various civilizations, actually doing it sometimes, etc. There's a really nice short description here of what they've been doing between the smugglers and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's said, not much. Yeah. Well, <laughs> ben says he's tired of you know landing on some uninhabited planet, lengthy rambles with the doctor to collect specimens of plants and rocks, and then off again. So it is a nice background. There's a regular program. Yeah. You know, Doctor doesn't just, like, you know, go places seeing what he can destroy or interfere with. Yes. But he does have in his mind some concept of an agenda of scientific collection. Until we find out later that, no. <laughs> he just, <laughs> just make it up as he goes yeah. along. Yeah. But this is true. But there's a, there's a nice idea of space in there. Mm-hmm. This is what they've been doing meanwhile. But this is what they've been doing, true. Having non-adventures. <laughs> and, yeah, you never see those non-adventures, really. The new series kind of t- tries to show you those non-adventures, but even then, somehow, something goes wrong quite often for them. I mean, this time, they're lucky that they just landed and the Cybermen were there. Um, even if it was a very weird... Ver- <sighs> A very weird version of the Cybermen who have a weakness to radiation, which we'll never see again. It was another opportunity for Ben to be clever, though. Right? Yes. So they're really smart, right? They're really strong. Yeah. Why are we carting off this object? Yes. And so it did, once again, give him a nice chance to be insightful where the scientists mm-hmm. had missed that. Yeah. And it's a shame. Hey, what, that what that are they lazy? Come up oh, no. It's radiation. <laughs> no, they can't do it. They can't do it for some reason. Anything else, such as the actual regeneration? What do we feel about the actual regeneration at the very end? Uh, peekaboo! It's just <laughs> yeah, blinking on <laughs> Yeah, uh, I like I liked how playful it was, though. Um, you don't you don't know me, you know, <laughs> for, you know. Um, I I love him asking for a mirror, and and the only one existing being Polly's mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it like like I said earlier, it's, it's the the ending of this the story is kind of uh, wrapped up very quickly. Yeah. Their end regeneration is is part of that. It's mm-hmm. it's something that we've been waiting for, and uh, having having seen a couple of them now in the new series, it, it is more of a, an event. Mm-hmm. But this just comes off as just like no no. Uh, he went to sleep, and he covered up, and then he pulled yeah. the sheet down, and look, he's a different person. <laughs> you do get the sense that Polly and Ben are completely flat-footed about what... They think the adventure is over, and now yes. it's yeah. a completely different thing. And in fact, it does happen differently on screen, as we'll see. Yeah. But for various different reasons. Well, I think it's better described in Power of the Daleks, in fact, um, in the John Peel novel. But we will see once we get there, obviously. Uh, it's a shame we can't watch the Christmas special because, but it's kind of a good thing we can't watch the Christmas special because people have complained about the portrayal of the First Doctor in that story as being horribly sexist. The fact of the matter is, Hartnell's Doctor may come across as sexist occasionally, but the Doctor himself is not sexist. The show was. Yeah. And that seems to be this weird thing that came up in the Christmas special, which I hope they leave out of the novelization, or at least try to explain away in the novelization. So, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, his description of the Troughton Doctor is spot on. That's exactly Mm. what Troughton looks like. So, we've got something to look forward to, definitely. 
any last thoughts on this? Any uh, any anything you remember that stood out to you? Anything that nice simple scene setting of, for example, they describe the base at first in this nice layered way that there's a room with the controls and above that the ceiling, then six feet of ice and the blizzard. Yes. Nice sort of almost quick description of a cutaway diagram. And then when uh, the description of the astronauts in the capsule tumbling through space and their perception of the sun circling them like a spotlight. Yeah, exactly. And there's a good sense of their disorientation, it's beautiful, but they don't know what's happening, and right. the lights that are and we simple and lovely. And we do not get a lot of that in the televised version. They do a marvelous job of Antarctica, weirdly enough. Hmm. You'd think that that wouldn't work, but on a soundstage in Britain, you yeah. know, that it somehow works. Lots of white snow. Mm, lots of white snow. And the, Cybermen, the and the Cybermen are utterly eerie until they open their mouths. Mm. Yeah. And that voice comes out. Which is much eerier now that it's done correctly, but at the time, yeah. Well, we'll see. I guess, yeah. Uh, the only other thing is two other things. The picture on the front of the book, mm-hmm. uh, their their skin, or what is I don't I don't even know. It looks creepy. It's meant to be a metallic fabric. Yeah, it's it's but creepy. There's skeleton underneath. It's creepy. Yeah, it's really creepy. Um, and then the the other thing is just um, once the planet once Mondas uh, explodes, it's like how does this not like affect <laughs> Earth? Yes, if it was that close in proximity. To it, yeah. but again, this touches on just ignore the science because just repeat to yourself. It's just a show. It's just really a show. just relax because I I don't let stuff like that bother me. But it's just something. Well, you know, the idea I think is that Mondas doesn't quite explode so much as it just kind of falls apart in space. Yeah. So it's not explosive in any, any yeah. way. It's just that the energy causes it to melt. They do talk about it melting. Yeah. So it could just be that it crumbles apart. So now we have a new asteroid belt just beyond our uh, our um, orbit, maybe. I maybe. maybe. I don't like Mondas. <laughs> Tell me why. Sorry, that's a bad pun. But, uh... That's okay, but at least Mondas is gone now. And now we'll hear a lot about Telos. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right. We need to talk about our favorite first Doctor author. We asked our listeners in a poll, which didn't go all that well, uh, which author they felt handled the first Doctor the best. And they voted to have us all killed instead. No, we didn't see that coming. They didn't. Well, (laughs) if I'd put a run right in, they probably would have. Yeah, I don't want to get into it, but there were very few actual votes. But here's the results. And they were all for Putin. It was very strange. Yeah, it was very <laughs> odd. Because it was Facebook, after all. David Whitaker got the most votes at 42.9%. And then there were four other writers who each got 14.3%, which means they got one vote apiece. Okay. John Lucarotti, Ian Martyr, Donald Cotton, and John Peel. Hmm. Those are indeed the ones that they say are the uh, best writers. Not bad company, Doctor. Not know. bad company at all. Um, and I'd have to agree. I'd say that David Whitaker, it's right there between David Whitaker and John Peel for the actual characterization of the Doctor and how much they give back to him as a character and make him mysterious and interesting. How about y'all? How do you feel? 
I'd have to be looking at the list of titles to remember who goes. Can I know y'all were supposed to do this? <laughs> I'm sorry. We did this before. Um, I didn't if you can think of a I book, apologize. though, Tony can probably tell you the author. Yeah, I'm if a... you remember a book that's. I mean, if, if I had to pick off the top of my head, I would say Cotton because I remember specific ones that I enjoyed. Okay. I remember Witches Whitaker. Some of the others I have to look back at titles. Chris Sanders would be Whitaker. Yeah. Oh. I, I'm, I'm, we spoke before. I, oh. I thought Lucarati in the Aztecs mm-hmm. and Whitaker in the Crusaders was, yeah. um, you know, whenever I think and of I didn't the, read those. So. Right. Yeah. Whenever I think of the Doctor, I think of kind of the Aztecs setting up the rules of time travel, I guess, with, mm-hmm. with Barbara. Uh, you exactly. Know. Um, and I, I feel like that kind of got it for me. Who was yes. the, the one that's set in the Iliad? The, the one that's set in the Iliad? That's mm-hmm. Cotton. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. would be the Mythmakers. Okay. Mythmakers. So, absolutely. Let's do what we normally do. Go to Goodreads. And find out what other people felt about this book, by the way. If you're listening to this and you want your review featured, you know what you need to do. All right, the average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.66, which is higher than The Smugglers, but not quite as high as I thought it would be. Michael gives it four stars and says, By the time this one came out, I'd already witnessed my first time loader generation when John Pertwee bowed out. So the big surprise at the end of The Tenth Planet shouldn't have been that much of a shock. What it did do to my understanding of the show that I drifted into loving through John Pertwee's tenure was to make me aware that regeneration had occurred before and that sooner or later it was going to happen again. The story also introduces the Cybermen and their original, almost unrecognizable, though very creepy, cloth-masked version. I was a month old when The Tenth Planet was first broadcast, and by the time this book got into my hands, the BBC had already junked much of their pre-70s episodes including that Crucial Regeneration episode. But not the sequence, as it turned out. So there's that. Um, Jerry Davis's analyzation sticks close to the original script. There are a few minor changes, like the year being 2000 instead of the original 1986. A Roger Moore James Bond cameo, sort of. Some teasing <laughs> lines from the newly regenerated Doctor at the conclusion. And most noticeably, the reinstatement of the Doctor's lines from episode 3 which were delivered in the televised version by Michael Craze somewhat confusedly <laughs> when Michael, uh, when William Hartnell missed filming due to ill health, even though the Doctor doesn't have much of a presence in the story. Still a very enjoyable affair. And one of the first times the race under siege scenario that would be, soon become familiar was used. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, we're going to get used to base under siege. We're going to see a lot of that. So, aged 10... I couldn't really think of anything better than walking home with a book like this under my arm. Mm. I loved it. Garrett, or Jarrett, is a little less impressed, giving it three stars. He says, from the end of William Hartnell's tenure. So there's a whole section where he's barely in it. Truly a relic of 1976 with its flattened female characters. There's only one. And Negro Spacemen, never used in a derogatory way, though. This has a Star Trek world utopia vision of international space cooperation kind of structure with Ben and Polly's companions, good scary Cybermen. The Doctor's not as much as a presence on this page as maybe you'd like. And the secondary personalities, Ben Cutler and so on, are dominant. A few loose ends, but otherwise an okay read. And finally, Chibixio gives the minority opinion, giving the novelization 1.5 stars and saying, it hurts me to give a Doctor Who story a single star, but I found this one boring and disappointing. 
I didn't like the guest characters. The treatment received by Polly rubbed me the wrong way. I think that's when they ask her to do coffee. It's not going to be the last time. Mm. The story just lacks something. And neither the Doctor or Ben could make up for all the lacks. Besides, the plot came across as a bit unoriginal at this point in chronological order. Maybe I had higher expectations than usual because this was the Doctor's last adventure. I don't know. So, what do we feel about this one? Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give it? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, four stars ah. with this one. Mm-hmm. I uh, I really liked it. I I enjoyed, like I said, I enjoyed reading about the Cybermen, uh, their first encounter with the doctor mm-hmm. uh the way that the the companions were handled i really enjoyed ben and polly coming into their own especially like we said after having uh companions that were Less every man you know it could have it been anyone right um <coughs> the way that the regeneration was handled even though it was kind of quick I liked how it, it it was kind of built up through the story. Mm-hmm. So even though it kind of didn't pay off with the big bang in the end, uh, um, <laughs> I, I yeah, I, I really liked it. So I, I would say four out of five for me. Okay, all right, Allison. I'm gonna go two point five, which is quite positive for me. Yes, yes. this is true. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Normally, it's my job to complain about flattened female characters getting coffee, but. I would argue in this one that one of the nice things is the characters would ordinarily be flat and underestimated managing situations upward without anyone noticing that that's what they're doing. Yes. So I think it's actually, I, I think the opposite's going on mm-hmm. uh, to what those people are, are, are criticizing. I thought it was actually a, a great 70s adventure, not in like the sort of... Logan's run over the top decadence futurism way, yeah, exactly. but the, yeah, the more sort of simple, flat military that um, premise it gives a chance for characters to sort of pop against that gray background. Mm-hmm. True. Um, so yeah, overall quite positive. Two point five. Okay, terrific. And as for me, the reason why I hated Celestial Toymaker so much is because I was well aware that Jerry Davis was capable of so much more. <laughs> Yeah. This is a book that proves that. Oh, um, later books will prove it even more so. I'd, I'd say that my favorite novelization of his is Tomb of the Cybermen, which is coming up, which on the screen, even though it's Matt Smith's favorite story, it's also kind of a disappointment. But on the page, it just comes alive and is electric, and that's because of Jerry Davis's prose. It's really lovely. And everything that's new here is... Nice. I don't like the updating of the story to 2000, but I could see where it would actually work out in some ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would give this a four out of five. It's good to see finally Jerry Davis writing the way I know that he can. So, four out of five for sure. So, thank you guys. Thank you. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll look at Troughton's first story on Doctor Who, Power of the Daleks, and we will have a special interview with the writer of that book, John Peel. Yes, our first author interview. We are really excited about this. Um, Mr. Peel seems to be too. He actually wants to be a panelist later on in one of the episodes, so we're going to do that as well. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order with no spaces. You can visit us on nearly pristine subreddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash wdwtargetbc. Also, feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment at YouTube. 
Follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcaster uh, provider of your choice. If all else fails, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. During all the years I've been taking care of you, you and the turn have been taking care of me. Grandfather, I belong with you. Not any longer, Susan. You're still my grandchild and always will be. But now, you're a woman too. I want you to belong somewhere, to have roots of your own. With David, you'll be able to find those roots and live normally like any woman should do. Believe me, my dear, your future lies with David and not with a silly old buffer like me. One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Goodbye, Susan. Goodbye, my dear.